Hello and welcome to Koshian Cast, the world's best and only sports anime fan podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me today is a special guest, Matt. Hello. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. We are covering week three of the fall season, covering October 16th through the 22nd, uh, beginning with days this hey, Matt, season. Can I actually just interject before we jump into days for one minute? Oh, by all means. All right, yeah, so I just wanted to acknowledge the fact that uh, in the first few weeks of our podcast, we've already gone international. Oh, right. Yeah, so I, do, I don't want to uh, give the impression that we don't appreciate that. So while uh, the majority of our listeners uh, are in the United States, as we are, we have had several downloads in Europe, both in uh, Germany and France. Um, so I just want to shout out to our uh, European friends out there. Thanks for listening. We hope you stick around. And <laughs> for any Europeans or otherwise, um, we'd love to get to know who you are and um, how you found out about us and you know begin that conversation. You can do that. By checking out our Twitter or Facebook, Koshiancast, and uh, yeah, we hope to hear from you soon. I just wanted to make sure we acknowledge the fact that we appreciate uh, people tuning in from halfway around the world. <laughs> right? <clears throat> cool. Yeah, thanks guys. Um, so we're going to jump into days right now. Yep. Uh, so that's all you, buddy. Yeah, it's, um, again... I, the overall message with Days is that it's never going to recover from its first half. You know, it has too much ground to make up, I, right. I, I think. Uh, but what it's doing is pretty okay, considering. Um, right. So so in this episode, we're sort of ramping up to the end of the training camp, which seems to have gone on for the, about this whole season. Um, I guess it's just been two episodes, but it, it feels long. And the, so Sakamoto just jumped in to the, the most recent game. Uh, they were playing this elite defensive team, and he was substituted, although he had played the last game on defense, he played this game uh, as the center forward. And they don't really show him at the beginning of the match, but they do... Uh, show Kazuma and Miyuki, um, Mizuki, sorry, uh, making a big impact against this elite defensive team, and they end up scoring four goals, and everyone's overwhelmed, and everyone on the sideline is talking like, oh my gosh, is Seiseki a new powerhouse? I never thought they could be this good. And when I was watching it, I, I wrote down a note, I, I was sort of confused, because they don't Seiseki didn't add any new players. It was the same people that, that had always been there. Why are they suddenly an offensive powerhouse? Like, why is everyone freaking <laughs> out about them? And then the episode chooses to answer it in the way that it always answers these questions, in that, oh, it's because Sakamoto is um, unintentionally amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the explanation here is that... Uh, because of his one game playing defense, he has learned to play defense as a forward. So that means that every time a shot from Seiseki gets broken up, um, 
Sakamoto will be there to make a steal or to interject himself somehow to get the ball back to Kazuma or Mizuki. And so it's it's an interesting idea, but the explanation they have for it is that the only reason that Sakamoto can play this super effective offensive style where he focuses only assist on assists and not on goals is because he has no ego, and he's the only forward who doesn't care about scoring goals. Uh. Yeah, so... So I'll just I'll just finish and we'll come back to that. But that so that's the reason that he's able to focus exclusively on supporting his teammates above himself and um, not making any attempt to make a shot. <laughs> so they so right so Seiseki wins that match and suddenly we realize I don't know if this was a surprise to you Matt but suddenly we realize that this is a tournament structure at this yeah, training camp? Yeah, I didn't really get that. Yeah, they never acknowledged the fact that they were playing a tournament until after the what is apparently the second-to-last match. So they're moving on, and now they're facing um, Seikon, which is the the uber team, the highest-ranked team, the one they're all afraid of. Suddenly, you know... Real, we, uh, real quick, I just want to interject super quick there. I hate the fact that it's called Seikon because it's way too similar to Seiseki. Well, yeah, and that's that's the thing, is that all the powerhouse schools have S's and K's in the name for some uh. reason. Um, so, who knows? Uh, but, yeah, it, it is it is very confusing. Seiseki and Seikon. So, so Seikon is this powerhouse school, and now Seiseki is going to be facing them, so they have the lead-up to that match in this episode, and then presumably the match will start next time. Um, really, the, the the big takeaway is that you have a couple interactions between Seiseki and Seikon, um, particularly uh, Mizuki runs into the captain of Seikon named Tyra, and they have a conversation about how they're both going to be pros, and Tyra insinuates that Mizuki would be better without his current team because his true potential hasn't been reached, but Oshibara is over, overhears him, and that'll create drama next episode. So, Isn't it actually uh, Kimishita who hear, overhears him? Oh, you're right. You're right. Wait. Did yes. you confuse the two characters? No, I would never do that. <laughs> They are they are all so distinct and memorable. How could I possibly? Right. Um. My my fault. You're right. It is Kimishita. Uh. And then also, Himura is another character on Seikon who exists and <laughs> believe you know just feels the need to to tell Ushibara. So I was right on that one. Um. There you go. Sakamoto is better than him. Okay. Great. Um. And then Kazuma has a sit-in-the-sauna-off with <laughs> another forward from Seikon, and they both pass out, and it's very funny. And that's pretty much the episode, so they're really just setting up for this big match that we're suddenly told to care about against Seikon, and that'll be um, next time, and presumably we'll realize why uh, Sakamoto's new style is elite. So... Do you, do you want to just interject your thoughts about Sakamoto's evolution? 
Yeah, okay, so first of all, I don't understand how that's any different than how he's already been playing. His whole style has always been basically just chase after the ball. I... How is this any different? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I could get from it is that... So in in the finals, in the last inner high, he tried to take a shot and he missed and they lost the game because of it. So I think right. that he's trying to say like, I'll never take a shot again. <laughs> and which is a weird philosophy for a forward. <laughs> right. But yeah, there, I mean, there was a lot of things that bothered me about it. Probably the, I mean, the most significant is the same one that that's always there of anyone could do this. Like, are you really telling me that right. the only reason that he's able to play in a supporting role as a forward is because he has no ego? And all these other forwards from these other teams say, like, ho oh, ho, I could never play that way because I'm too arrogant. Like, okay, <sighs> that's a choice. Like, Right. Like, I feel like in any other sports series, we would have characters acknowledging that this is a valid style of play, and there would be plenty of people who would acknowledge, hey, this is my role on the team, is just to keep the ball away from the rest, from the opponent. Yeah. Uh, but in here, it's like... Uh, I hate to bring this back up, because I know we vowed never to discuss it again, but mm-hmm. it starts really feeling like a self-insert of the author. Oh, yeah. He's making, it's like, no, he's making this great sacrifice. For the rest of the team, woe is Sukamoto to never, ever take a shot at the goal. No, his whole thing is that he's going to sacrifice his own glory for his friends. Yeah, exactly. And what that results in is everyone in the crowd freaking out like, Ugh? He has such elite self-sacrifice, you know? And it's, it's not that impressive. Yeah, anybody... I also refuse to believe that there that it is an atypical strategy to have someone on offense who focuses on assists over scoring. Like right. that's definitely a super basic strategy. Right? <laughs> like But no, in this case, no, it's their ultimate strategy that they could only do because of Sukamoto. Well, it's kind of because the strategy of soccer that you see in days is about at the level of seven-year-olds, where they just run right. around in a big mob and try and kick the ball in the goal. You know, there's no real meaningful strategy to it. So I guess mm-hmm. in a universe in which they are all playing like seven-year-olds, uh, that would be an elite strategy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, what is funny is that, you know, going along with that whole, this is soccer by understanding of grade schoolers. Right. There's a line that, it's such a minor line, but it really stuck out to me. Which is when Tyra and Mizuki are talking about how they're going to be going pro together. Tyra says some kind of line like, Kimishita is like holding you back. He's only letting you play at like 60% of your ability with your with his passes. Yeah. I could make you play at like 100%. How are your passes any different? I'm not arguing that there isn't a difference. But I don't understand how you believe your abilities are that much different from one another. Because you don't go into detail about why Kimishita's passes aren't as effective as yours. Right, and, and Mizuki acknowledges the, 
the possibility that that's true, which is weird. And right. Have we ever seen this character before? No. Has Mizuki no. ever even seen this character before? I don't know. Um, there's no reason for us to believe any of what they're saying. Right, and not only that, but when have we ever been led to believe that Kimishita was not that great of a passer? Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's like everything you, in this show where they throw in developments and act like everyone has always known these things uh, in order to trick the viewer into thinking that there was development of these characters somewhere along the line. Right. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's it's not like a terrible episode, I guess. Like oh, you no. said, it's okay. In again, when they deal with the slice of lifey stuff, it's not that bad. Like I got a chuckle out of Mizuki. Some like I kind of like the way that Tyra was introduced by making out with a random girl in a storage closet, right. and Mizuki kind of opens up the door and is unfazed by this and just sort of casually apologizes to them. Like I, I thought that was that was a little funny. Yeah, it, no, and it, it was funny. I mean, that's that's the thing. The reason that I put Mizuki on the banner image for our Facebook and YouTube <laughs> is because he's the only exciting character. Um, right. I just want to acknowledge one thing, and then we'll move on, uh, thankfully, which <laughs> is the coach once again somehow becomes even worse in this episode. Oh, um, oh my God! Yeah, go on, go on. I think I know what you're gonna say. Okay, okay. Um, the thing for me. <laughs> is that he has two modes. Um, he, one mode is him being stoic and giving instructions without explaining himself. Right. And the other mode is being surprised and confused by what happens in reality. <laughs> right. And so what happened here is, so the last episode he put Sukamoto on defense um, in order to teach him about... I don't know, teach him to follow the ball and stay on people and whatever. It seemed like a decent idea. But then he decided <laughs> to immediately put him back on offense. And you're like, okay, why? And he wouldn't say why. He was being stoic and he would not acknowledge Sukamojo's legitimate curiosity. Like, I'm bad at offense. Why are you putting me on it? And the coach just says, because I said so. Um, it turns out working out very well and Sukamojo's a natural because he's a defensive offense, whatever, you know manic pixie dream boy and it's all very exciting but then they cut to the coach and he says wow i never would have expected him to do that well or <laughs> i never would have expected him to come up with that strategy i'm like wait so then why did you put him on defense why did you put him back on a forward like if what you didn't your... think yeah if you didn't think he was capable of doing that why are you going to all this effort to give this terrible soccer player so much opportunity if you have no plan. Right. Uh, my, I, You basically said what you were going to, but there was a line that stuck out to me, what he said, which was, I always considered Tsukamoto's kindness a weakness. Yeah, so then why do you keep playing him? Yeah, exactly! Exactly! Play anyone else. They're all better at soccer. Just pick any character who plays, you know, who has some experience being a forward. Tell them, I don't want you to shoot... I just want you to focus on getting assists and preventing, you know, the ball from coming back on our half. And they'd right. say, okay, coach, I can do that, because they want to be able to play. And they do a better job, <laughs> right? Because even in this episode, we see a shot of Sukamoto falling down, grabbing the ball. Like, 
Yeah. Basically tripping over his own feet, getting the ball. Yeah, and they're like, wow, what an elite player. <laughs> <laughs> I hate this uh. I mean, like, there's good things about it, but I just, I, 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 I hate it. Yeah, I know. This was, even for being okay and still being better than that first season, this was still Nothing not about a this good show episode. can justify itself to me. But, um, going along with stuff that used to be bad and is getting better, uh, do you want to go into Tiger Mask? Yeah, so Tiger Mask probably had its best episode to date. I would uh, not be surprised if it would be basically its best episode for the rest of the season. Yeah. I mean, I come in with some cynicism because of how bad um, parts of episode one and episode two were, and parts of episode three, <laughs> but, but episode <laughs> four this week was pretty okay. Um, so this basically featured a couple matches with Red Death Mask, who was this elite GWM wrestler they they brought in in order to finish off Tiger Mask once and for all. You know, they refer to him as their most powerful wrestler. He's a total mystery. No one knows what his deal is somehow because YouTube doesn't exist and they can't look up any matches he's ever been in. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it, and so he comes to Japan and he does two matches. The first is against a non-Tiger Mask Japanese wrestler. And Red Death Mask uh, validates his name by taking a couple elbows to the face and not reacting, and then grabbing the Japanese wrestler by his face and breaking it with his fingertips and then slamming him on the ground and into a pole and knocking him unconscious. And honestly, it looked like he just murdered him. Oh, yeah, no, I, like, I'm like 90% certain that dude is dead. Well, I mean, in a realistic universe, he would be, but I don't think they'll actually kill him off in this show. Oh, no, no, no. Um, so, and then, of course, his murder in the ring goes unpunished and unaddressed by any other character. <laughs> um, even Tiger Mask, the alleged good guy, seems to have no particular interest in the fact that the wrestler he had just tag-teamed with last episode was just murdered in the ring. Yeah, I mean, like, he's never... This wrestler is never acknowledged again in this episode. Yeah, it'll... I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's strange. But moving on from that, they, they set up for the... They, they do a little flashback about how Haruna met Naoto for the first time when he had been recruited to become the new Tiger Mask, uh, which I <laughs> I really kind of liked, um, mostly because you you see that, that Haruna's dream was to work at her uncle Takoka's uh, auto body shop. Like, she just yeah. dreamed of being a mechanic after high school. Which I didn't really expect, but anyway, so he shut down his auto body shop so he could focus on training Naoto for three years, of course, because this is that what this kind of show is. Right, because, I mean, that's a sustainable business model. What? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> should, should it not be? Um, it's a kid's show, whatever. Yeah, so whatever. Uh, but he... <laughs> so she's distraught that the, the shop is getting shut down and she's crying, and I just want to briefly acknowledge one of my favorite lines... In the episode, because Naoto comes over to comfort her, because uh, she's so upset, and he said, Sorry, I'm becoming a tiger with Takaoka-san. Yes! Oh my god! 
without acknowledging what that means. <laughs> and she's like, I didn't understand you back then. It's like, yeah, because that's a sentence yeah, a crazy person would say. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then they get set uh, after that. You know, Haruna says, "Boy, you sure were weird back then, but good thing we're so such good friends now." Whatever, and they get they get set for the match between Tiger Mask and Red Death Mask. Um, I also want to acknowledge my other favorite. I had to stop and I had to pause and to laugh at that line I just said. The other one I had to pause and laugh at uh, was when Red Death Mask is introduced to the other GWM wrestlers who were already in Japan. And Miss X introduces him, and she says, Red Death Mask, these are our new wrestlers, Kevin, Mike, <laughs> and Tiger the Dark. <laughs> yeah, why is Tiger the Dark the only one who gets a cool name? Yeah, also, like, Takuma, who, under the mask, Tiger the Dark, he just goes out with Kevin and Mike and refers to them as Kevin and Mike on his off time. It's not like he wears the mask 100% of the time, but... Their actual fighting names are just Kevin, Mike, and Tiger the Dark. I don't know. I, Maybe I just it loved sounds it. more exotic in Japanese. I mean, it's just they're just names. But what what gets me is in how blatantly this show labels the guys who get beat up versus the guys who do the beating up. Like if you have <laughs> a crazy uh, nickname based on some animal that comes from English, then you're strong. Uh, if you go right. by your own name, you're gonna get destroyed. Oh yeah, <laughs> every time. Um, so anyway, uh, after they all meet, Tiger Mask is standing in in the ring and waiting for the match to begin. But then the lights go off. Red Death Mask ambushes him, <laughs> attacks him, wraps him in his own cape, punches him in the face, and throws him against a corner pole. And the ref says, "You should stop." And a bunch of people jump on him and say, you should not attack someone in the dark and cheat before the bell rings. And uh, he punches them in the face and throws them out the ring. <laughs> Including the commentator for the broadcast who jumps in the ring and gets thrown out of the ring and breaks a table. And then keeps announcing. <laughs> Um, and no one really decides to stop the match or do anything about it because, uh, you, oh, that rascal Red Death Mask, he'll, he'll kill you. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, in their defense, what can they really do? Yeah, I guess. I mean, but... how do they stop him? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. The, the, so, the, ma the match goes on and Red Death Mask initially has an advantage, I'm not going to try and describe this match blow by blow. Um, all I'm going to say is that it actually is animated really well. It's it's the best animated fight of this show so far. Um, you can actually feel the impact of each hit. Uh, the moves seem to have an effect on the other characters. There's back and forth. It's not like the other matches where Tiger Mask just immediately wins. It does seem like Red Death Mask could win and his moves are pretty cool and fun to watch um oh geez yeah his um his death grab is legitimately brutal yeah it's scary like he he grabs people in the face and he squeezes so far so hard that they bleed and it looks like their eyes are gonna pop out right it's just horrifying yeah so 
So that that was pretty cool the way they did that, and uh, Tiger Mask manages to pull a pretty incredible comeback, and it's fun to watch. And uh, eventually, he's able to win by knocking out um, Red Death Mask, and he just points at Miss X and says, "Bring me your next wrestler," because he eventually wants to fight Yellow Devil. And Miss X just laughs, ha ha ha, I'll bring someone so strong you can never stop them. <clears throat> Which is weird because they, you know, the episode before they said that Red Death Mask was their ultimate wrestler. So right. Whatever. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, the one thing I want to, so it, it was a good fight. It's a really fun fight. Highlight of the series quite possibly. And I'm not, there's a lot of crappy stuff about this show about how poorly constructed the world is. Um, but the, if if they can keep providing fights of that caliber, it'll be worth it to watch. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And unfortunately, though, there's something about this. I don't know if... I don't know enough about the original Tiger Mask. This feels like they were saving their budget for what they knew was going to be the big episode. And I wonder if Red Death Mask was, like, an iconic villain from the original Death Ma uh, Tiger Mask. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's why we got a much better fight out of it is because they wanted to make sure they did this famous fight from the original one, Justice. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Uh, so, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good That's a good theory. It's definitely possible. Um, <laughs> the one, possibly my favorite part from that fight, though, on just a humor level is the fact that after, after the ref had been attacked, after multiple people had been thrown out of the room, after... Red Death Mask had ambushed Tiger Mask in the dark. Um, at one point, Tiger Mask gets Red Death Mask against the ropes, and the ref interjects and says, Rope break! And so <laughs> then they both pause, they disentangle, they stand up, and then they go back at it. Like, for that moment, they acknowledge the referee. Like, <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm sorry, do the rules now suddenly apply? Yeah, like, why is the referee still even there? Um, <laughs> it's like, take a break, man. You're there to do the count at this point. Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, there was one thing I was really confused about, and that was the structure of this episode. So, we have Tiger the Dark's pretty crappy match. I mean... Intentionally crappy. Mm-hmm. Uh, match against the one... Kevin. Against... Uh, who cares? It was and, Kevin! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then they say it's... Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's not Tiger the Darks. It's it's the setup match for Red Death Mask, where he's fighting who cares. And they imply that suddenly Tiger Mask has to go out into the ring and do his battle... And then they cut away, and it's the next day, and then they're setting up for the Red Death Mask fight. So I'm really confused. Did Red, did Tiger Mask have another match that evening that wasn't Red Death Mask? Were they were they flashing back to the re, to the first part of the day before he had to go into the ring to fight him? I I didn't get that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't have a good answer for you. Oh, okay, cool. Um. The the only thing I want to say about Tiger the Dark is that they're trying to set up, like, now suddenly Takuma slash Tiger the Dark is um, upset that he's not being treated as a strong enough fighter in order to fight Tiger the Dark, or, excuse me, to fight Tiger Mask himself. Like, they don't, GWM doesn't take him seriously as being someone who's strong enough to fight Tiger Mask, and he thinks he is, which, on one level, 
um, why you're supposed to be a good guy who's there to fight Yellow Devil. Why do you care? Um, but on, I guess he just wants to get more notoriety in the organization so he can finally meet Yellow Devil. And he doesn't know that Naoto is Tiger Mask. But it's clearly trying to set something up where he's indignant and he just seeks right. out a way to fight Tiger Mask. So I think probably they'll get another GWM wrestler in there for the next arc and Tiger the Dark will somehow sabotage it and end up fighting Tiger Mask himself. Yeah, I, I kind of took that as being Tiger the Dark's descent, I guess, because this is supposed to be the match where he starts purposely getting a little bit more brutal with his attacks. Mm. Because, uh, with, like, oh, the whole... Oh, you think he's going to the dark side? Yeah, I think that's what this match was implying. Again, it's not very clear. They don't do a great job. They didn't do really do a good job setting it up why he's so bitter that, like, nobody's taking him seriously. But yeah. I think that's the idea that they were going for for this match. Well, again, I wouldn't blame him. Uh, he did climb a mountain in the middle of a blizzard in his tight right. without any support to the top of a mountain in order to just get this Tiger the Dark mask, and then all he gets is, you know, fighting Kevin in front of 12 people in Japan. It's like, <laughs> I was about to say, uh, it's like, you know, Kevin did that, so... Kevin did know. that, but he didn't get first. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, do you want to move on? Yeah, let's go on to uh, Scorch and Ping Pong Girls. Mm, no. Okay, so in this what? this episode was entirely devoted to the match between Agari and uh, Koyori. Uh, we learn in this episode during the course of the play that Agari is actually the driver of the North. And her entire ability... We learn that Agari's ability is that she is good at she's good at a specific type of driving. It's I want to say it's a was, was it a I thought I wrote it down in my notes. It's like a loop drive where she can basically she's very good at like I think it's like a flat drive where it goes like it goes straight and shoots down or something like that. No, 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 no. Sorry, I'm confusing that with something else. Where she's able to, like, shoot it up into the air, and then it has, like, a weird bounce on the way down. On, like, the way down. Yeah, ba basically, you can't get... It, it has a spin such that you can't get a clean smash on it. Right, correct. And in during the course of this episode, we see initially Agari just essentially dominating Koyori. Like, Agari can... Or, Koyori just cannot get a hit in, like, edgewise. And in this episode, we also learn... A we get a lot more character development for Kriori. Uh, we find out a lot more about her past and apparently how her mother was trying to force her to be the best. And that, really, she tried at a bunch of different, like, other activities and hobbies to succeed at. And we see that Ping Pong was just the one that she stuck with because that was the one she did immediately well at. Well, and, and this is for Agari. Oh, sorry, I said Koyori, didn't I? Yes. Oh, my bad. Yeah, sorry, for Agari. And so this was kind of the episode where we uh, start to... We, we learn more about Koyori, essentially, and we're starting to sympathize more. Go ahead. Wait, what was that? Sorry. Still Agari. You learn more ah, about Agari. Ah, jeez Louise. I keep wanting... Sorry, I keep thinking Agari as the main character, so I keep calling her Koyori. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway... So this was supposed to. This was the episode where we finally get it all on Agari and what is driving her. 
And throughout the course of this match, she lear Agari learns through Koyori's just sheer passion. And that ha playing against Agari, it, Koyori, ugh, is fun. And Ag uh, Agari really enjoys this fight because this is the first time she's really felt challenged because she gets she basically gets Koyori down to a match point and she and basically Agari immediately or Koyori keeps just turns it around and she just starts she's able to counter the loop the loop drive I think it was the loop drive and the match ends Koyori wins and, but Agari has come to terms with it because throughout the course of this match, she understands the passion that she feels, that Koyori feels. And she, she takes it in good grace and she starts to acknowledge Agari as being her friend. And that was largely the episode. Um, one of the things I thought was, I think that made the episode work was I, I have not been a big fan of Koyori throughout this. I've generally enjoyed it largely because of Agari. But I really enjoyed actually watching Koyori play in this because it... Sh ah, I'm trying to figure out the best way to describe this. It's... She has a way... The way she always describes it is that, you know, she just loves to feel her heart beat fast. It's that sort of right. pressure that comes from competition. Doki Doki. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I like the way they portray it because it really feels like she, it, this is going to sound creepy, but it feels almost like watching her play, it feels like it's almost a sexual experience for her, but not like in a perverted way, if that makes any sense. I mean, it doesn't, but go on. Well, it, it feels like in the sense that she is becoming one with table tennis. And that's what I mean by a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. her passion is getting so intense that she's become, she's becoming one with table tennis. And uh, Agari is learning that just through watching her play. It's kind of what everybody else has been saying all this time, that you don't understand her until you really see her play. And since we've been following Agari all this time... We've kind of seen, like, snippets of that throughout the rest of the episodes of kind of Koyori's playstyle, but now that we are firmly in the match with Agari, I feel like they did a good job making us understand that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I thought um, the reveal where Agari... She had, she had said in the past that she only uses her backhand smash basically because it has better control. And she had stopped using her forehand smash because it was, even though it was stronger, it was unreliable. And in this match, she finally, she breaks out her forehand smash, which sort of serves as a, a metaphor of her rediscovering what originally made her love table tennis. It's not the, cal it's not the calculated way of doing precisely the right amount in order to stay the ace. You know, she's just playing in the way that is natural and fun and doing everything she can to play well. And it puts her in touch with the things that made her pick up table tennis in right. the first place before... You know, what made it fun before she was just getting acknowledged for her strength? 
Um, which right. is something it's clearly been building up to, but I actually thought it was executed in a way that was natural. Right. And, and I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, there was not really a whole lot in this episode, because it was just entirely focused on the match. Yeah. One thing that did frustrate me, and I thought was interesting, was that by viewing this through Koyori's uh, viewpoint, or through Agari's viewpoint, I am sorry, I do not know... I'm going to get their character names right. Good. But, <laughs> uh, but because we're viewing this through Agari's viewpoint... I'm starting to understand her frustrations with the crowd because I feel like they were being annoyingly fickle during that match. Oh, yeah, totally. They, just because they start out just going, hey, yeah, Agari. It's like, yeah, Agari, she's our true ace. And then as soon as Koyori starts making her comeback, they're, they're, everybody's just suddenly, no, yeah, Koyori, you're the true champion here. I can't help but understand why she feels so threatened by yeah, Koyori. Because all of her hard. stupid teammates just root for whoever is doing well in the moment. Right, exactly. And I think that was intentional, though. Yeah. Like, I think that was an inten- I think that was intentionally done. Because by the end of the episode, you do see that her teammate, the rest of her teammates come around and are like, hey, Agara, you know, we, we, you still did very well. Like, it was still really fun to watch you play uh, just as much as Koyori. Yep. And it's like, okay, so this is the part where we're starting to see that Agari's fears were somewhat unfounded. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. Again, like like you said, most of this episode is taken up by the match between the two main characters. And right. So, uh, just in terms of the, su- summarizing that, it's really well executed, the animation is good, it seems like it has some interesting strategy, it's fun to watch it develop, it feels like... Everything is earned. Right. And again, I mean, I'm not going to go into it because my complaint, my only complaint about it is my complaint about everything and that the, the style doesn't match the content. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I just, and again, you can't really blame the animators because they're just going off of the source material. I just, I don't. I guess you could argue it's because it's almost the exact opposite of how a lot of other sports series have become recently, which was by pandering to the female fan base. This is basically taking the same strategy, except pandering it to a male fan base, I guess. Yeah. And, and it's, I, you're right, it is weird to see it, because traditionally, I guess, sports series would quote-unquote pander to a male fan base, but it was just because they had, like cool guys doing sports, you know? It was, right. The, the, the pandering was like, guys like sports, let's show them sports. Um, but this is clearly a very different target male demographic. Correct. Uh, they're, they're the kind that don't like sports for sports' sake, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. But he's still doing it, but he's still writing it for the type of fans who would still like that type of series. Just Yeah, he's with, trying to... Yeah. There was an interesting point that a friend of mine made, which was a lot of, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of sports series were written for the intention of appealing to guys because, you know, manly guys doing sports, you know, throwing their lives in the line for like this, for the sake of just pursuing this one sport. 
And then the sort of cutesy magical girl series were always kind of designed for women, for designed for girls, because it's like, hey, cute girls can do things too. Yeah. Like you can kind of f- like uh, fulfill this gender role while still also like being a hero. Sure. And somewhere along the lines, the fan bases crossed paths, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden now you've got the girls who are the fans. Of these, like, manly sports series because, you know, you got hot guys playing together, you know, having fun, being buddy-buddy. And you can insinuate that however you want. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And then you've got guys who really like the cute girls doing cute things because I don't want to get into that. But regardless, uh, this series kind of feels like it's written with that same sort of mentality, but written with a more, with a clearer idea of who this, of how to actually appeal to that old fan base. Right. But, you know, despite all that, this is definitely one of them that I would continue to recommend. It's, the, the episode holds up, and if you liked any of the past episodes, this one is good. It's worth checking out just for something that's very outside the norms for the <laughs> sports genre in, in the way it's presented, but still a very strong representation of, of a sports mm. anime in its execution. Yeah. Um, do you want to jump back to uh, March Comes In Like a Lion? Uh, Sure. Uh, yeah, I kind of skipped over that one. Yeah, no, for it. <laughs> so, this episode was largely about... The overall theme of this episode I took was, why does Ray play Shogi? Right. And we, uh, this, the entire episode starts on the backstory between Ray and Nikaido, mm-hmm. who is his self-proclaimed rival from back in the day. And you find out that they used to play, so... We find out that a lot of uh, shogi events, or the shogi, the children's shogi tournaments, took place on the uh, roofs of department stores. Of course, why not? For that's where most events for kids are being are generally held, is what I understand. Okay, fair enough. Because that's general. Because generally, what they I know in Japan, what they do a lot of times is they actually put all of their kid-focused things on the uh, rooftop. I don't quite know why, but I do know that that's a thing. Okay. Um, and so you find out that, essentially, Ray wanted to take pity on Nikaido when he was a kid, and he was purposely trying to end the match quickly because it was really hot out, Nikaido was clearly sweating and in terrible pain because of it. Uh, I think the implication there is it's because he's kind of fat, so he couldn't really well, deal with the weight. With it's that. Well, we'll get it, into we'll get into the the real reason why that is later. Okay, yeah. But I think that's what they were trying to imply was like, oh, you know, he's fat, he can't really deal with the heat very well, so he's just trying to get he's just trying to end the match quickly to get him into some AC. And but Nikaido gets angry at him because no, he's not playing him as he's he's taking pity on him and he doesn't like that. Right, and so then we flash forward to the day to the match of today, where they finally have their fateful rematch, and Nikaido manages to get Ray into a corner, and Ray kind of just turns it right back around and just crushes Nikaido, and we find out at the end of this first segment that Nikaido actually has some sort of illness. He First of all, we also find out that he comes from a very well-to-do family, considering the fact that he actually has, like, a butler and is being chauffeured around. And then and then we find out, though, that 
uh, as they're driving home, his butler asks him, like, I'm, or he tells him, I'm really sorry that we couldn't, I wasn't there to, like, fix your meals and everything like that, so you probably weren't getting very good nutrition. I know you're having problems with your kidneys. I'm sorry we're going to have to take you to the hospital right now. And Nikaido says, you know, Nikaido's fine with it. He's more upset about the fact that he lost to Ray again. Right. And so that's kind of, the, that's the first part. Because they split these episodes into halves. The second half is about Ray's, basically the aftermath of that match. Ray goes to visit the girls at the house, and they are celebrating their Obon. They're celebrating the stuff for Obon. Which is apparently, I don't know a lot about Obon, but it's about uh, welcoming back the spirits of the dead. Right. And essentially what happens is, it's a very quiet moment for them. Uh, Ray feels very out of place there. And, but nothing really happens of it. They kind of, they perform the ceremony where they, they, they burn the, uh, the incense. And then what happens after it's all done, uh, this, the middle girl of the group, uh, her name is Hina. She claims she wants to go to the convenience store. And their grandfather basically tells Ray to go follow her because they all know that's BS. And you find out that Hina actually went out on her own to cry because she didn't want anybody to see how distraught she was. Because effectively this whole Obon thing was a reminder of their parents who were gone. And they had to basic This entire festival is basically them sending them off again. Yeah. And it, the episode kind of ends with Ray comforting uh, Hina in his own kind of silent way. Uh, it was a good episode. I really enjoyed it. Uh, one of the best parts about this episode, again, is the subtle way they address how Ray or what Ray's purpose is to play Shogi. Because that first part, <clears throat> we see Nikaido's purpose seems to be... Really, it's what gives him purpose because he's a sickly child, he's a sickly guy, and it kind of gives him drive to better himself. Which also leads us to wonder, well, then why does Ray play it? And we find out, he mentions in this episode towards the end during when he's going through, when we're going through the whole Obon part, that his, basically he sort of plays Shogi to keep his mind off of his life. Mm. And that, because he sees Hina's crying and he always thought it was weak, he didn't think crying, he thought it was weak basically. And so rather than cry, he decided to just force himself into this one... Basically into this one niche that would keep him think, from thinking about the painful moments in his life. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think there's a reason, too. Every It seems like every time they go to a shogi hall, they'll have a shot of, you know, one of the... Um, one of the handwritten signs um, on the wall... Right. Where it'll say something like, you know, a a a pure pure mind can only be free. I, I'm I'm doing a terrible job of describing the calligraphy that <laughs> they have on the wall. But they have, you know, they they always try and focus on signs on the wall that talk about how to free your mind and how to um, not focus on details, but to let yourself be free and unrestrained. And it, you know, I, I feel like that is reflected in the way he plays Shogi and what he's trying to get out of it. Right. 
And I think that's uh, and that's interesting. I hadn't quite thought about that. It almost feels like a very... It feels like the series is kind of going almost anti-Buddhist in that regard, because the whole idea of Buddhism, which is, I think, technically considered to be the national religion of Japan... Now, I mean, nobody's really that strong of a practicer or a practitioner. Well, plenty are, but, I mean, what, what it, it has... It's tied up with the traditional religion of Shinto, but it's, it is very much a cultural institution, but it's also a widely held religious institution. And right. even if people don't practice, it's, it's public knowledge. Right. And so in a way, this feels like almost a rejection of those teachings, because a lot of Buddhism is about rejecting earthly attachments. It's about... And he's trying to. Yeah, and that's what he's trying to do, and yet he sees Hina, and he thinks to himself, maybe I shouldn't be trying to force myself to think like this. Like, maybe it's okay to cry for once, like, once in a while. Yeah. And I really like how this episode also continues to make him feel like an outsider in very subtle ways. Like, there's a great series of shots of when he's playing Nikaido as a child, and he talks about how the two of them playing is almost like they're in terrible pain, and after this, they do a couple of just quick shots to other kids oh, in the yeah. area who are, like, just playing now, normally like kids. You know, they're, they're like, riding on the, the quarter... I mean, not obviously not quarter, but, you know, the sort of, like, bouncy machines yeah. that are, like, vehicles, or, like, riding on, like, the kiddie train yeah. that goes around the... Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, they're playing chess. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, they're playing shogi and basically fighting for their lives. I mean, not quite, but... Mm -hmm. You know, they've already thrust themselves into this very adult mindset. Mm -hmm. And how you can kind of see how these are two kids who have basically foregone, foregone childhood. Mm. Yeah, and, it, that's interesting. Um, and I, I'm really appreciating how much this show does with its editing and its camera work. Uh, there's this great shot of Nikaido during their fight, or during their, uh, their fight, their, their yeah, right. the shogi match. Uh, when he, there's a move he, where he puts out his silver general, and this is the moment where he apparently got Ray because this was a move that completely took him off guard, mm -hmm. and they use, like, a fisheye lens to show him, and just, you can kind of sense his obsession just through that, like, weird deform, deformed shot of him. Hmm. Yeah, I, I thought that was a really fun turn. It was nice to see Ray not be in control of a match for once. Right. And see how he reacts to that. Um, there's a lot of fun things in this episode. Yeah. I mean, um, honestly, I think you've kind of elevated my opinion somewhat. One of the issues I've, I've had with this show is that I fixated a lot on the first episode, and it had a very unique style. Right. And that... I described in the last episode as kind of art house, and it hasn't really maintained that aesthetic since right. then. And part of me is upset about that because I latched onto the show because of that style. Right. And now I guess I'm trying to I'm trying to take it for what it is and what it's trying to do, and I guess it's trying it's trying to have that episode be a look into his internal life and then right. see from the outside for the rest of the show or the majority of the show how he pre 
kind of moves beyond that. I don't know. Right, and it's kind of funny, too, because you really liked that first episode, and I did not. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like we're kind of going to trade places that you're going to be much more enthusiastic about this by the end than I was. Right. Um, I guess I'm just, I've really come to appreciate a lot of how, like, a lot of the sort of camera tricks, even though this is animation it uses. Sure, sure, sure. And, uh, and a lot of the, and I, I prefer a lot more of the subtle touches to the characters now, or a lot more of the, uh, the subtle plotting of it. Um, there is one other part. Oh, yeah, um, there's this, there's this great moment of when... Uh, Hina breaks down when she starts crying, and it's like this. She, what you see is her. She just it's the it goes completely silent, and she just you see her opening her eyes and just br like you just see the sheer contrast from her normal pretty calm self to just completely breaking. And it's since we're seeing this through Ray's eyes, we can just sense of just how much of a sh like how shattering this is. Yeah, and it's was uncomfortable like even as a viewer. Like as a as a viewer, it's uncomfortable to see that because it just right. You feel like you're seeing something you're not supposed to be watching. It really did. It was executed in a way that made you feel like you were standing with Ray and observing. right. You're like, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't. Be right. Here. Exactly. And I just I'm re I mean I don't know I'm really even if it's not like I don't know how much I feel about the story because I guess there really isn't much because it's basically just Ray going day to day life. I we had his match against Nikaido and I guess that was kind of built up, but there's not really a lot going on. Yeah. But I I'm appreciating a, the character study that they're doing now with it. Right, they're never gonna escalate to him, you know, fighting to be the best in Japan. I don't right. Think. Th that and was if, never his if, character. And if they do, it'll be, like, super passive and he won't acknowledge it. <laughs> <laughs> True enough. Um, yeah. No, it, it was fun. I think it's... Uh, I'm, I'm glad that we're both, you know, I interested to see where it goes. Because it could go so many different directions. Right. A, lo a lot of these shows are kind of predictable. You can you can get what they're going for. Um not so with with March comes in like a lion. I'm sure right. I could look it up because the source material is out there, but I'm I'm excited to be along for the ride. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so speaking of being along for the ride, uh, <laughs> the next show is Long Riders. So, um, what did you think of episode three, Matt? I didn't have an opinion of it. Well, you know what? Neither did I because there was no episode three. <laughs> um, something happened. Yeah, we don't know what. And they they shortly before episode three of Long Riders was supposed to air, um, it came out that it, it wasn't going to be, and they simply re-aired episode one in Japan. So not was... a great sign to be doing re-airing of the first episode on episode three. Yeah. So clearly there's some issues in production. Um, I, my thought was it would have been really hilarious if they had tried to do a recap episode of the first two. <laughs> um, they, they did not go that route, but it is never a good sign when you have to have an unexpected uh. break in release. So the animation and has overall been pretty good for long riders, and the art has been pretty good. Right. Um, you wonder if they put so much into the first two that they got behind trying to keep up with the rest of the show. Uh, 
and I personally worry about whether it's going to be able to maintain that level of quality moving forward. Yeah, I think we're a little worried as well because the same thing happened to Cheer Boys where it oh, started yeah. out pretty decently and then that then that missed that episode and it just went down from there. Yeah. Um it will be interesting to see what happens, but I am now I, I was very, very enthusiastic about Long Riders after the first two episodes. And now I am guarding my enthusiasm <laughs> because I think it is it's very possible that it's going it's not gonna be able to keep up because either way, you know, they had some plotting out of where they wanted the story to go over the season and now they have one less week to do it. So it's at least going to be forced to make compromises in the story, even if you don't see it in the animation. Right. So, who knows what happened, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to see episode three next week. I mean, and, I mean, they gotta keep their Western fan. I mean, like, we are the two fans in the, in the West. Well, you are the fan in the West, and I'm the other guy who's watching it. Yeah, I don't know anyone who is watching <laughs> Long Riders. I mean, it's it's unfortunate enough that they made it exclusive through Dice Key. Uh, right. It's almost it's unwatchable by the majority of fans who watch through you know Crunchyroll or Hulu or, or Funimation. Um, Funimation, you know, sort of sort of some of the big ones. But if you're gonna make it exclusive to a platform very few people use, and it's not based on anything anyone cares about. Gosh, I the the decisions that go into this I do not understand. But anyway, so we move on to another show I don't totally understand, All Out. Um, and when I say I don't understand, I mean I don't understand why they aren't able to do more with this premise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the the episode is pretty paint by numbers. Um, Kana, uh, Kanagawa, the, the main school, has their first practice match. Uh, it is with one of the strongest schools in the prefecture called Keijo High, of course. And they <laughs> spend the beginning of the episode meeting some of the players from Keijo. Um, their, their captain had met uh, Kanagawa's captain, Sekizan, a few years ago, and he wanted to have a rematch because Sekizan was so fired up that it motivated him, and they have a little recap of young Sekizan, um, which is interesting only because Sekizan's character design has changed so fundamentally from <laughs> his when he was a freshman to now that he's a senior that he's almost unrecognizable. He's about 80 pounds, <laughs> right, larger, put, packed on that much muscle, and now he has white hair for some reason, whereas right. his old character design didn't. But that's just strange and unexplained, but <laughs> mostly irrelevant for this episode. So they have the match, and the big conflict in it is that one of the members of Keijo is a guy named Miyuki, who is a is Iwa. <laughs> Iwashimizu's childhood friend who when <laughs> Iwashimizu was learning how to play rugby, Miyuki was the guy whose shoulder he dislocated and that's sort of what made Iwashimizu so shy and tentative in rugby because he never wanted to hurt anyone like he hurt his friend Miyuki again. So what happens in the episode, Gion thankfully isn't playing because he's an animal who knows nothing about rugby but <laughs> Iwashimizu is playing and he... Uh, at one point, uh, Miyuki breaks through, and he has the ball, and he's running straight at Iwashimizu, 
and he's very excited, and he's worried that Iwish he's curious to see how Iwashimizu is going to defend, and then Miyuki's running closer, running closer, then Iwashimizu has a flashback of hurting Miyuki, so he just doesn't tackle him, and he lets Miyuki score. And everyone's furious, Miyuki's furious, how dare you disrespect me, yada yada, Iwashimizu is just like, but I'm shy! <laughs> um... <laughs> and uh, it's it's kind of uninteresting. Uh, and yeah. so, so Gion gets really mad from the sidelines, and he yells at Iwashimizu, and he says, Tree Trunk, you have to protect our ball, because it's ours. And that motivates Iwashimizu suddenly and inexplicably. And then he's really, really strong. So everyone thought Iwashimizu was a pushover, but no, actually, he's the greatest. And <laughs> so they play the rest of the match, and it doesn't really matter who wins, because uh, that's not important to the, to the story. And that, that's really the only meaningful development. Um, you learn a few more of the rules of rugby itself, which is nice. I kind of like the fact that they don't try to burden you with too much information, so they teach you a few rugby rules at a time, they only introduce a few characters at a time, even though they have all the characters out there on Kanagawa's team, they don't try to develop them all, or introduce them all right now. Um, they're just giving... The, the one thing it does well is it doesn't give you too much information. So you basically only know the few main characters, you know a few rules of rugby, and it teaches you along the way. But... I don't know. Overall, I just felt like the stakes were really low, and I wasn't invested in what was going on. The animation was decent. Uh, yeah. The, the hits were decent, but it just felt like there wasn't much meat behind any of what the characters' motivations were. Right. And uh, it's the call of Gion and going, that's our ball, is just one of the most unearned lines I think I've heard from anything that's not days. Right. <laughs> um... It's everything that has been established about Gion is that he doesn't really care that much about rugby. He really just wants to beat people up. Yeah. He's got he's got a power fantasy and rugby is fulfilling that. Yeah. And yeah. like his entire story arc from last episode was I don't want to do deal with the ball. I just want to learn how to tackle somebody. Mm -hmm. But and all of a sudden now he's part of the team and he wants to be like no, you have to protect our ball. That's ours. And it's like, have you had the teamwork lesson yet? Yeah, he barely knows what a rugby ball is. Right, exactly. He's never even held it. He's he's kind of had it on his back. Yeah. But yeah. he's never really, like, held it or really cared at all about it. Yeah. And just this notion that all of a sudden he demands Iwa to, like, you know, understand, like, this is our team that you're letting down. Mm -hmm. I just, where did that come from? Yeah, you don't you care, care about the team. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, one thing I want to acknowledge before we move on is <laughs> um, that it looks like they're trying to create some parallels. With the flashback for, for Sekizan, my understanding was that they were trying to say that, that Sekizan started rugby as a freshman in high school. Right. And I think they're very clearly trying to make some parallels between him and Gion, that they were both, like, fighters who just wanted to train. They wanted to train all the time like crazy people so that they could be strong and right. fight. And it seems like they're trying to, to model that 
as, you know, you're the next Sekizan. You know, it's really Dion. scary to me that I'm starting to see more and more of the parallels between this and Days because that's literally Mizuki that. and uh, Asukamoto's thing. Exactly, yeah, and they both have the strategy of how do you get better at rugby? Well, do bear crawls for 12 hours. Um, yeah, wait, sure, why not? You know, how do you get better at soccer? Run indefinitely <laughs> and don't practice shooting. You know, uh, they have the, the most illogical developments, and the only answer is train all the time. Right. Um, um, before we move on, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a question, actually, hmm. about the series. And that is, we have kind of, we've kind of briefly touched about, uh, touched upon the, the recent uh, tendency to make sports series be uh, Fujoshi bait, which is, you know, hot guys playing sports together, being manly men. I would, we we've kind of come to a uh, agreement that there's kind of a there's kind of a level to it. We have Haikyuu on one level, which is there are hot guys here. Do, uh, girls, you like them, deal with them as you may, that's fine, whatever. And then we have Yuri on Ice, which is basically full-on embracing this, and kind of addressing right. some of the tropes. Right. So, I'm kind of curious to see what your take is on All Out, and where it kind of stands. Yeah, it's not clear, because... At this point, the characters are so one-note... Right. It's it's hard to imagine, you know, and they don't show much evidence of them hanging out outside of rugby. They don't really show any evidence of how the other character, like, how, how do your feelings affect me, which is a lot of it. I guess you see it a little bit in this episode with how Iwa is motivated by Gion, but it's so unearned that it doesn't feel like anything. Right. Um... I, my my guess is that they're they're trying to be like Haikyuu and but they don't know how to make well-rounded characters that would actually appeal to that um, right. Fujoshi aesthetic. Well, see, because it's interesting as well because I'm seeing a lot of lines and moments in this series that make it feel like it is trying to make a wink to that audience. Like for example, uh, the uh, Sekizan's main rival from the team like even blatantly states, "You have the eyes that I fell in love with." Oh yeah, right. Um, or right. stuff I like, about that. uh, or like, and where does that where does that come from? Uh, after they lost their big game against them, uh, like a couple years ago, he saw Sekizan training out in the rain, and yeah, there was the, really the nothing only, more to it. Yeah, the only thing that would make me hesitate for that being actual Fujoshi bait is that Tyra, that that character who says that, is played almost exclusively for comedy. Right. So um, it's hard to take that as really being a statement that would be interesting to right. Um The And then the other moment I was thinking of that feels like it's really trying to pander to this base was the moment where Iwa fails to block Miyuki. And normally in most series this would just be like, they do this whole thing where, you know, as, he's pa- as Miyuki is passing Iwa... There's like this freeze frame, and Iwa, or Miyuki realizes what just happened here, and maybe he would like slow down a little bit in another series, but still like make the touchdown. In this, what happens is that happens, and he just comes to a standstill, just in utter shock of what happened here, and then he gently walks over at a 
fairly slow pace and gently sets down the ball. And to me, this feels like it is it is trying to pander to that fan base by creating a situation with drama that has been unearned. Yeah. Yeah, the, I, th- I think a lot of it comes out of the fact that Iwa is... His character is portrayed as so submissive. Right. And, you know, so shy and so afraid. And he's surrounded by all these hot-blooded guys that, on some level, if you want to impose that super unfortunately gender normative interpretation of um, how characters in BL are supposed to interact maybe that's an attempt at it but it's so lazy and if if that's really what they're trying to do it's super cynical and lazy that uh, it would be unfortunate yeah I don't know it's kind of one of those series that I don't mind the Fujoshi uh, pandering, as we'll see later on, a series that does it very well. Yeah. It's just... Yeah, that's the thing. I'm starting to notice it. Yeah, if you're doing it honestly, then then it it can be fine. It can be done well. No one's complaining about Free being a bad show. Because Free pandered in a way that was interesting and fun for people who even weren't watching it for that reason. Um, right. But when you pander in a way that is cynical and just trying to get grab that Fujoshi money, right? Then you just end up making a a show that's terrible on multiple levels. Right. Exactly. Like Cheer Boys. Like Cheer Boys. So, yeah. I I don't know. We'll we'll see where it goes, but I'm not hopeful. So uh, speaking of series that are solely pandering to a certain fan base, you want to talk about Keijo? I don't, because I'm still not watching that damn show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't I just tell you about it then, okay? Okay, let's hear about it. Okay, so at the beginning of this episode, we have a Nozomi uh, face-planting into Nan's breasts. Mm. Yeah, that is the first shot after her vacuum butt wave. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'm never going to get tired of that. Yeah. Um... And in, during this, during the course of this episode, it is uh, we get something set up, which is we are going to have a class change battle. Basically, I, I think I've touched about upon this in the past in past summaries, but essentially, at this university, uh, there are the elite students. There are the ten elite students who uh, basically get like half off of tuition and also get super special treatment. And but, however, uh, to throw a bone to the lower class students. Uh, they do allow matches against these elite students in order to uh, change your class. Basically, a shot at becoming one of the elites. Okay. And what uh, there was a character established. There was a new character established in this by the name of Rinrin. Uh, she is a she is a fighter of Keijo that is referred to as an outfighter. Basically, there are three types of fighters. There are infighters who rely on pure strength. Uh, we have outfighters who are more like they keep their distance and they rely on speed to jump in and get quick shots and then shot uh, jump out. And then there are counter types. And Rinrin is the fastest outfighter in Western Japan. Okay. <laughs> um, in order to show this speed, she basically not only does she use a super fast version of Miata's butt gatling. She... <laughs> yes, this is a move. Okay. Uh, this Wait, is Miata's what? special move. Can you uh, just briefly? What's a super fast butt gatling? Is it just you 
hit them with your butt fast? Yeah, super fast. You basically keep shooting out your... You basically keep... It's basically like a super fast butt thrust, and you keep doing it over and over again. Um, if anybody's... If anybody reads One Piece out there, it's very similar to Luffy's, uh, Gum Gum Gatling, which is him just punching over and over again. This is just, uh, butt smashing over and over again. Do you think that's where they got the name? Uh, possibly. Hmm. Uh, it's also, it's pretty common actually in, uh, JoJo as well in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure because that's, uh, that's also kind of JoJo, uh, I was about to say JoJo, uh, Jotaro's signature move, right. which is the, uh, the Aura Aura, which is basically him just rapidly punching somebody over and over. It's kind of a common shonen trope. Fair enough. But, uh, Rinrin's is faster than anybody else. Okay. And, uh, and also in order to show this, in, in order to show her speed, she, um... She basically dashes behind Nan and starts groping her repeatedly uh, until she orgasms. What? Yeah. It, it's not like addressed that she orgasms, but it's kind of obvious that what hap- that's what happens. Okay. <laughs> okay. Go on. That's un- that's unpleasant. That's, isn't that is that not assault? Uh, I'm pretty sure it is. Uh Okay. Um, during the, uh, sure. and basically, however, we're starting to see a rift formed between Nozomi and Miata, because everybody is freaking out about the fact that Nozomi can use the vacuum butt wave, which, as you find out, is a super high-level move in Keijo that only, like, high, like, basically what they say are prize queens are the only ones who can use it. Um... And so this basically gives her a natural advantage, and she doesn't. And Miata is getting a little bitter over the fact that Nozomi is kind of letting this go to her head. Uh, and then her and she uh, Nozomi is called by her teacher, who is Ujibe. I'm gonna say that's how you pronounce it. Okay. She basically calls her over and tells her you cannot use the vacuum butt wave anymore because that is that does puts terrible strain on your thighs. And it will actually put you out of commission if you do not know how to use it properly. So, and basically Nozomi uh, contends with her that she really needs to learn how to use this because she desperately wants to become a prize queen and she'll do anything to do it. So she really wants to be taught, she really wants to be taught how to perfect this maneuver. So they basically, so Ujube basically gives her this suit that constrains her movements. Um, it is a skin-tight suit that, for no particular reason, seems to expose her belly button. Yeah. Uh, I mean, whatever. What You get what you pay for, guys. And basically, throughout the course of this episode, you learn how she's struggling to move around in this, because it is... Basically, she... It's basically keeping her from even walking, essentially. She has to put the utmost focus and concentration in just moving. Also, during this, because Miata has become intimidated by this other outfighter, because Miata herself considers herself to be an outfighter because of her sheer speed, she is trying to learn how to conde- basically learn how to speed up her butt gatling. And she comes up with uh, the implication is that she comes up with a method that we don't actually get to see in this episode. We'll probably see it in next episode because it kind of ends before her big match, where she unveils it. She learns to basically condense her butt maneuvers into a smaller surface area. Which will basically allow her to get off more butts in a row. Oh. Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah, you heard me. Basically, I mean, I... by reducing the uh, basically reducing the area in which she uses her butt gatling will basically allow her to allow her to use the butt gatling 
in a uh, in a faster rate by just just by sheer uh, less movement. So she's so I guess for example, rather than covering like I don't know like a two meter area, she condenses it maybe down to a meter so she can get more butt gatling like basically more butt gatling shots in a smaller space because there's less because there's less space for her to move around in. Okay. Uh, we also learn that Alba is a technical fighter and that she um, is trying to gather data by massaging girls' butts. By off- she's basically offering free massages to to the other girls, and she's apparently learning more about their butts by massaging them. I I don't know what you want. Uh. <laughs> Whereas Nozomi figures out towards the course of this end, the court towards the end of the episode, to. Basically, she needs to quit fighting the suit, and she, uh, if she quits fighting the suit, she can, ba- she can move around a lot easier. And then the very end of the episode ends with, uh, basically the beginning of the class change race, and, uh, we find out that Miata is going up against Rinrin, and that's kind of where the episode ends. Hmm. So, how does it stack up to the rest of the series? Uh, not well. <laughs> Uh, but maybe better as well. Oh. Uh, so I guess one one of the things that's really confusing to me about this is that we find uh, one of the things that's addressed anyway is that Nozomi and Miata have this sort of breaking up and then immediate coming back together because Nozomi figures out that what Miata is really frustrated with is that Nozomi isn't giving Miata enough credit. She's not standing up for her because Rinrin is basically talking down about all the girls in her class and about how none of them can move as fast as her and. I guess Nozomi was not standing up for Miata, which is, I guess, okay, except you can clearly see during those sections where Nozomi is trying to get a word in and trying to clearly say something nice about somebody, and, uh, but Rinrin keeps, uh, plowing over her, basically. She's not letting her get a word in edgewise. I guess it was... Kind of interesting to learn that there are different types of fighters, and so we're going to start seeing all the characters fall into these specific niches. Uh, I don't know. I feel like there's just not... I feel like we are just going through... This is a series that is just going through the motions just to get to the the parts that guys want to see. Butts? Yeah, butts and breasts, basically. Uh, in fact, my understanding is that this uh, this episode actually changed a lot of events from the manga, and they added in some random stuff for the anime. Like what? Now, I, I do not know. I am actually purposely trying to keep myself uh, clear of what happens in the manga for the most part, because what I'd like to do is at the very end of the season uh, actually read the parts of the manga, or at least read like the first 30 chapters, and see how it influences my opinion of the series. Interesting. Just, uh, but for right now, I just want to view the series as it is. Um, I there wasn't really like a lot going. I mean, there's a lot that's established in this episode, but there, like at the very least, the other two episodes, I got some some decently animated battles, even though I didn't really feel anything about those battles. They were still at least kind of fun to watch. But in this episode, there wasn't really... I didn't really even get that. Hmm. It, it just felt way... Like, I guess with the other battles, you can make the excuse of... Yeah, these are... It's, this is clearly pandering to guys, but at the very least, uh, it's got some action going on. Here, it felt like they just took that out. 
and it felt just straight up fetishy. And I, I don't know, watching the rest of the series, it's been dumb, but I haven't really felt uncomfortable. This episode kind of made me feel a little uncomfortable. Oh, well, I'm sure it won't get more uncomfortable in the next eight episodes or anything. <laughs> well, we'll see, I guess. So, speaking of uh, another show that probably made some people uncomfortable... Uh, yeah, uh, we going on to Yuri on Ice, then? Yeah. Okay, so that is me again. Uh, in this episode, we have... Basically, we get the routine set up for Yuri and Yurio. And... Throughout the course of this episode, Yuri is trying to figure out what Eros means to him. Because he honestly does not know because he has no dating experience. He has basically spent his whole life just trying to perfect his figure skating. And he's never been out, he's never even been out on a date. Right. And eventually he comes to the conclusion that his, that his Eros is effectively... Uh, a poor cutlet bowl. Yeah, that's the only thing he can really see himself being like heedlessly passionate about. Right, exactly. That is the only thing he can really bring himself to be excited for. And I get and that's what he finds that's what he figures out about himself. There's more to that, but we'll get into it later. Meanwhile, Yurio tries to figure out what uh uh unconditional love is like. Essentially, and he comes to the conclusion that it's his grandfather who basically raised him, it seems like. You were thinking of Agape. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. And basically, towards and we kind of go through that a little bit. We see them go through these training montages. For example, for example Victor doesn't even want to go over Yuri's... Uh, he doesn't really even want to like help him practice his moveset, just on the basis that... He needs to still, like, he still doesn't even know what Eros is, and he still doesn't feel confident in his own abilities. So he basically says, yeah, forget about it. I'm not even going to bother going through this with you. Hmm. Uh, towards the end, and then we get the big competition between Yurio and Yuri. And what happens is Yurio does well. Victor even acknowledges that Yurio basically skated as good as he's ever seen him uh, perform before. Whereas Yuri goes, uh, figures out and that, or he kind of ex comes to accept the fact that he is not a sexy man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, he says no. it himself, basically. He basically comes to accept the fact that he probably has a more, what is considered a more feminine personality type. Yeah. And so... What's interesting is that he figures out that during Victor's routine, he figures out, he kind of sees this story play out about this very passionate man who who basically goes into town and basically woos all the ladies, and that towards the end there's a lady who falls deeply in love with him, and he basically just leaves her. Right. And Yuri figures out that he can't be that man. He, he's never going to like really attract the ladies like Victor does. So instead, he embraces the fact that he is actually probably closer to the woman desperately searching for passion and having it never returned. And this and this blows Victor away, and he eventually agrees to choreograph the routine for Yuri, and Yurio basically goes back to Russia to train. And that's kind of where the episode ends. So the major thing I wanted to point out about this episode is that not only... it's this series is very clearly pandering to the Fujoshi. What's interesting is 
is how blatantly it's doing it and how it's kind of helping it play into the story. So, for like, I'm really kind of amused, for example, by all of these very, like, this is one of the very few animes that I've seen that really feels like it's uh, shot with a female gaze. Like, in mm. film theory, there's always been this, um, there has always been this stigma about the fact that a lot of Hollywood films are filmed very much with a male gaze. So they're basically, basically what that means is that the camera is always looking at what a man would want. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, for example, Keijo is very clearly male gaze. Right. It's staring, I mean, it's a very blatant, almost, uh, almost to a point of parody of how much it's male gaze. Mm -hmm. By focusing on shots of boobs and butts, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Yuri on Ice feels like the, one of the very few series that is shot with a female gaze. Mm -hmm. In the sense that, for example, there's like this really, there's this really interesting, uh, close-up at one point when Victor is trying to stop Yuri, he basically, like, there's a close-up of his, th like, he basically kind of grabs him by the chin, and I feel like in a lot of, like, sort of those sorts of series, this is just sort of done as a far shot to pander, this is actually done as a close-up so you that you can actually really kind of see his thumb in Yuri's mouth. Yeah, it is, there is a lot of over-romantic imagery. Like, it, it it's not like, ooh, I don't know, interpret it for yourself. No, it, no. It reads explicitly romantic. Right. It's like, there is no doubt in my mind that this is a... Th and it's interesting, too, because I found out as well that the director of this series is actually a woman. Mm-hmm. As well. And we are... And she is sort of addressing and kind of embracing this passion that people have yeah. for, like, for this sort of pairing. And, like, you can kind of see this as well in the fact that, uh... Oh, it's... Is her name Yuki? It's... Let me take a yeah. look at the notes real quick. Yeah, Yuki. Uh, basically, who, who was uh, Yuri's best friend growing up, the one that he kind of thought he had a thing for, and he mm -hmm. kind of gave up. And she's basically serving almost as the, uh... She's basically serving as an insert for a lot of the female base because she sees Yurio in one of uh, Victor's outfits, and she literally just has a gushing nosebleed when she sees this. Right. And this is again kind of turning around the stereotype of the guy of like the like of the Master Roshi type or like Sanji right, right, from One right. Piece of the guy who just has gush who has gushing nosebleeds anytime he sees a hot woman. Like it's kind of. It's kind of reclaim. It almost feels like this is a series that is trying to reclaim the genre of sports for women. Like mm -hmm. this is the series that is proclaiming no. This is a series. This is for girls, mm -hmm. and this is why. Yeah, it, um, it's also interesting with this that it's addressing issues of gender identity head-on. It's not right. just, like, dancing around, ooh, are they gay, are they not? It's, like, actually, this is address addressing... The only way I can interpret the episode is right. that Yuri is sexually attracted to Victor. Right. And he's starting to figure that out. He's starting to recognize that in himself. And he's trying, starting to embrace the fact that his gender identity 
might be different than what he thought it was. Right. Um, you know, when I not not to say that he doesn't see himself as a man, but that he doesn't see himself as being a man in the way he thought he was supposed to be. Right. Uh, so whether that whether it means that he will explicitly come out as being attracted to men, I right. don't know. Um, well, it's and interesting. Wh- whether or not, you know, Victor is ever going to reciprocate or Victor just has his own issues or um, whether this is a relationship that will be validated or if they'll sort of back off from it. Because this is very clearly, like, the, the episode ends on an emotional high. It's sort of the end of the first story arc. It's right. possible that they'll back off from it and go more towards the cartoony stuff they had before, but I, I think it would be a shame because it's really doing something unique that you don't see in anime where it's exploring issues of gender identity and homosexuality in Japan that right. don't get brought up in a serious way that much. Well, it's also interesting as well because I, I kind of want to touch back on what oftentimes appeals to Fuji- Fujoshi and kind of bringing it back to what you're saying here is that I thought it was really interesting, for example, that the outfit that Yuri chose, they yeah. mentioned that it was an outfit that Victor wore to bl- to basically blur his, uh, his, basically his sexual identity. The whole idea is that it was supposed to make him look completely androgynous, though that he could be either a male or a woman. Right. And a lot of times in stuff, in a lot of, like, Fujoshi Bait sports series... Um, you find that a lot of times it's ambiguous. Like, they purposely make it ambiguous so that people can, uh, basically so that girls can pair up guys however they want, but they always make it, but they always, that they never confirm that they're with somebody or not. Right. And in this, it's basically like saying that there is beauty in that ambiguity. That there is, uh, that that's actually what's attractive to girls, or that is actually what is attractive to people. Mm-hmm. It's not so much a straight gender definition of male and female, but rather it's a blurring of that, of that notion. Yeah. Um, there was one other thing I would like to address in this episode, which is the actual figure skating competition. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> that's important. <laughs> Um, it was interesting, it was interesting, if you look at Yuri and Yurio's, uh, figure skating, if you actually, like, watch the episode and look at the animation, it's really interesting to see that Yurio's, uh, like, actual routine, his animation is drawn very off-model from what his, like, normal, like, character model looks like. And what's interesting to me about that is the fact that... Um, first of all, it felt like they were came into maybe a bit of a budget issue, but they didn't want to detract from the actual routine. So rather than what do, a lot of shows do, which is rather they tone down the animation and but try and keep the character model the same, they actually said, "Screw it, we're going to keep up the we're going to keep the animation going, but we want but we're going to go ahead and make the make the character look off base." So as to not belittle, because I think they realize that figure skate that the figure skating routines are the really exciting part, and having them done in stills like they do in like days during the action shots right. would make it feel very uneventful. Yeah. 
Now, the other thing that the other part of, to me that's interesting about that is that it's only for Yurio's routine that it's done off model. Because if you watch Yuri's, Yuri still feels mostly consistent. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea is that what you find out during this these uh, matches is that Yurio is solely focused on just trying to complete the routine. He's not actually thinking about how it comes off. Whereas Yuri is specifically just, he's worried about how people are going to interpret it. He doesn't care that he makes a mistake here and there. Like, for example, they mentioned that he kind of slips up a little bit and he like has to grab his balance real quick. Right, but he's so focused on inhabiting the the personality that right. he's going for with his interpretation that that's what ends up making the bigger impact. Correct. And I think it's interesting that they try and convey these two different ideas just by changing how they are animated. Essentially. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, like for So for, like, Yurio, even though it technically works... You kind of see through the poor animation or through the poor art quality how you can kind of see through that why it doesn't work, like why he ends up losing as a, as opposed to Yuri. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's I, I think it was done well. I'm looking forward to the next story arc, um, probably where they'll introduce more skaters from other countries and see how Yuri can stack up in more competition. Uh, I'm interested to see if... I don't know. I, I'm, I'm interested to see if it'll become a more typical sports anime where it's focused on tournament structure, or if it'll still mostly stay focused on the development of uh, Yuri and Victor and you know their right. relationship and their backstory and stuff. Alright, well, why don't we move on to the final episode of the, uh, of the evening or of the day, and that would be Haikyuu. Right. Okay. So this entire episode it kind of picks up from the last episode, and this episode is basically all about who they refer to as the Guess Monster, yeah. which is an amazing name, by the way. I absolutely adore it. I didn't. I don't know if I quite uh, emphasize this enough, but I also love the Driver of the North from Scor- uh, Scorching Ping Pong Girls, and I just I love these nicknames that they come up with. Right. In these types of series. Uh, his, his real name is Tendo, for the record, so I thought I should right. point that out. But really, he's right. the guest monster. Right. Um, basically, what you find out about the guest monster is that... I mean, it's what it sounds like. He is a monster about guessing. He knows exactly... He Basically, whenever a serve goes up, there's always a chance that it could, like, it could go to like, any one of like three or four sorts of situations. And that the guest monster is perfectly able to figure out how based on either, like, looks that the setter is giving or, like, what the rest of the team is doing or is able to just sort of feel out how the situation is playing. And throughout... And not only during this, we also start to see some more uh, involvement from Ushiwaka. And we see that uh, uh, Suki is actually starting to get a little bit fired up. Very... Kind of the opposite of how he normally is, which is basically just treat this like any other game and... uh, just stay the course and just try and pretend you're having fun because you're just in a club. And But he's starting to get fired up from the fact that he is getting sick of being looked down upon by this other teen and is starting to learn how to uh, read Ush- uh, Ushiwaka, which you kind of see just by sort of a glance that he gives. And so we see what... Basically... 
they figure out, basically the, the entire course of this episode comes down to them figuring out how to read the guest monster, which is, they figure out that they need to start sending attacks over his head, rather than letting him, because his big uh, strength is staying up at the net and blocking whenever they have a spike coming down. So uh, Kageyama learns to send the sp basically send it so that Hinata can send the spikes over his head and over to other people so that he can't get his hands on it. Hmm. Um, and then the episode basically ends with them sort of they're basically at break point. So they're they basically basically Karasuna has managed to ca catch up. They are now standing on even ground with Shiratorizawa. And now they have to basically fight out the set. Yep. So I think, yeah, they're tied at... I think they're 22 and 23, something like that, uh, in the second set. So right. whoever can get... At, at this point, if either of them can get to 25, they'll be able to win the second set. Right. Correct. So the point is that now... This entire episode was basically about showing how Karasuno can catch up. Right. Um... So, there are just a few things I want to touch up on in this episode. I'm I'm enjoying how they are basically setting things up just by small actions. Mm -hmm. uh, like, for example, there's this... Like, you can see how Suki is learning how to deal with Ushiwaka just by... Or wanting to deal with it just by a simple glance. Because it's teaching us... It, it expects us to understand these... These character developments without having to go, like in depth with them. Like, we don't have characters off to the side of, like, wow, Suki is really, like, getting fired up now. Like, gee, right. I wonder what's going on. What if it's... I wonder if Ushiwaka is, like, inspiring him somehow. Yeah, it's like, no, yeah. we gather... They always it. do that, too. Yeah, I mean, exactly. No, this is just... A, it's just... Ushiwaka is talking down to him, he gives him a glance, and you know Suki is getting sick of this. Right. Actually, I felt like a lot of this episode was about Suki. Yeah, Definitely. Um, like, it was a lot about his development, because he actually is the one who takes initiative in blocking, I want to say, did he block Ushiwaka, or was that the, uh, Nintendo? Well, it, he, he, they blocked him, well, in that they forced him to spike down the line. That's right. So that it could get, uh, so that Nishinoya could actually receive it effectively. That's correct. That's right, that's right. And it was, basically... The old Suki would have never done that. Like, because he, he doesn't take initiative, he just wants to play out the game. But he's finally starting to become a part of the team. Not only that, but he even, like, he tries to... Uh, one of the aspects of the episode is that they bring in uh, Yamaguchi as a pinch server for uh, Hinata, who cannot serve. Yep. And to help him calm his nerves, he just says, nice serve to Yamaguchi. And, again, what's nice about that is, again, we it expects us to know, understand the context there. That Suki is not a terribly friendly guy, but he has always had a soft spot for Yamaguchi. And that he can tell that Yamaguchi is nervous, and, just, and he just wants to acknowledge to him that he still believes in him. And that's just, again, it's done beautifully in just a couple of lines. Um... There are a couple other moments. Uh, there's a great song and dance by uh, the guest monster. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> Everything he's he's easily the funniest character. Oh yeah, no. In in the this season, he. My favorite thing is that he keeps singing these songs to make fun of Karasuno to talk about how they're gonna break their 
break their bodies and then break their spirits, but he always tries to make the other characters on his team guess what word he's going to say, and right. then he says a different word, because he's the guest <laughs> monster, so he gets them off guard, and they always get mad at him. He's uh, very strange, but... Um, he, 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 really, he makes a funny impression. And he's really fun to watch, too, because if he does, like, this weird, like, dance routine where he's just sort of, like, leaning his body back and forth. And what's yeah. funny is that they really make the animation on that smooth. Like, like weirdly realistic and smooth. <laughs> like, they, like, they put I, a I, lot of time into that stupid song and dance that he does. <laughs> right, exactly. And it, it's... It makes it more fun because of that. The fact that they would actually go in... Like, because a lot of series, for those comedic moments, they try and, like, give you this cue. It's like, okay, so now they're super deformed, uh-huh, and he's just going to uh-huh. do, like, some... Like, we're going to have a couple frames of him going back and forth. No, they're going to hyper-detail this, like, leaning back and forth. Yeah. Or or this, like, this whole notion when he gets really excited about the fact that he's, like, on the top of his game. You can see, like, this deliberate opening of his mouth and this posturing that he does. Um, it's I, just, think, I think my favorite part with him is when they realize the issue is that he is un, an unpredictable defender, the, that Tendo is. So right. Asano starts just, you know, they, they don't get worried about trying to outsmart him. They just play their best volleyball, and sometimes he, he misinterprets. And at right. one point, he completely misinterprets um, a set. And he runs to the wrong end of the net, and he just screams, I made a mistake! <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is one of the best best executed lines in the episode. Oh yeah, definitely. Like, he's just, he's a really fun villain. He, he's kind of the sort of... I kind of like this dynamic that they have going with, uh, with Tendo and Ushiwaka, because you kind of have, like, Ushiwaka as being this sort of grand, imposing figure... Right. And then you kind of have, like, Tendo, like, down in your face. Like, constantly goading them on. Like, he's the one who's, like, really getting at them. Whereas, like, Ushiwaka... But you always know that right behind him is Ushiwaka just mm-hmm. waiting to just smack down anybody who tries to defy him. Well, yeah, and Ushiwaka, the th- whole thing with him is that he doesn't get emotional about it because he sees himself as so superior that, like, right. why, why get emotional? But then with the comedic moments, he basically functions as a straight man to... Uh, Tendo being a crazy person. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. Like Haikyuu is still remaining. Like I'm really like enjoying Yuri on Ice. It's being a really, it's been a really fascinating series. March comes like a lion has been great, but Haikyuu still is just the most fun one to watch. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, because when you when you take in Haikyuu's past seasons, it has definitely maintained a level of excellence that most shows could only ever wish for. Right, um, especially because like three seasons in now. Like, and it's still, like, for anime, like, because this is around the point that most series would start seeing, like, their budgets slashed, uh, you'd start seeing, like, them trying to rush out more episodes just to kind of capitalize on the popularity, and no, they're taking their time with Haikyuu. And they're doing a short season. Right, well, there is that aspect as well. Well, Well, part of that is because there's no more manga. Right. But, anyway, all, all that is to say is that they could have made, they could have stretched this arc out to 13 episodes if they'd just been doing it you know, to make more episodes, to get more material out there, but they didn't, you know, they have, they're going to have ten quality episodes. Right, exactly. All right. All right, so I think that pretty much wraps us up for the week. Yep. Uh, thank you for joining me this week, Matt. I appreciate I, the invite. Not a problem, anytime. So, 
Matt, would you like to uh, hit the credits for us? Our logo design is by James Ratcliffe. The theme music is Fly High by Burnout Syndromes, covered and performed by Luke Bartka. You can follow Cast on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and our email is koshiancast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We will be back next week with the best and worst from the world of sports anime, and until then, keep training. 